Psalm 6 chapter, and we're going to continue our sermon series on um, Tell Me Something Good, the good news of God. We've talked and looked at, um, talk, what did I preach on? Um, <laughs> how um, God is good to us um, in the purposes and plans of our lives. We've looked at God is good because of the hope that he calls us to and shows us. And today we're going to look at the goodness of God because he hears us, that we can pray to him. Hear this from Psalm 6, chapter, I mean, Psalm 6. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am faint. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are in agony, my soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. No one remembers you when he is dead. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all you who do evil. For the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and dismayed. They will turn back in sudden disgrace. This is the word of God. Good morning. My name is Matt. I am uh, one of the interns here as as Howard said, and um, you know, this is my last year of seminary. I'm, I'm wrapping up a, a three-year program uh, studying, uh, getting my MDiv. And a young seminary student is always looking for pulpits to fill, trying to get a, a shot at preaching. This is a, this is a very weird pulpit to fill. I, I, I'm a little intimidated. I got one shot. This is it. <laughs> you know, it's it's tough following Pastor Howard and Pastor. Giorgio preaching, but uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity. Howard actually uh, invited me to do this via text message. Hey, you want to preach January 18th? And I'm, you know, okay, yeah. What, what, what are, what's the next series that we're preaching on? He said we're preaching on the good news of, of God, the gospel itself. Very excited about that. Okay, great. I like the gospel. It's good. And, uh, you know, what, what aspect of the gospel? And he says, uh, writes back, Prayer, the gospel of prayer. And it was one of those moments where the kind of the record skips. I'm like, oh, dear. I, I totally got gypped on this series. <laughs> prayer. What in the world am I going to say about prayer? Because confessionally, prayer is something that I struggle with. It's one of those areas in my life that, you know, I constantly feel guilty about. I don't know if I'm doing it right. I, I don't make enough time to do it. I'm constantly taking fresh stabs at it. You know, like, okay, this time I'm going to make a, a list of people to pray through. I'm going to pray on different days, and inevitably within a few days it falls through the cracks again. And just keep going back to it, and it keeps, you know, falling through. And I'm guessing that I'm not the only one in here who struggles with prayer. I mean, prayer is just like any other spiritual activity that in and of itself is very hard, very challenging, uh, mostly because we don't know what, what, what we're doing with it. Our, our thoughts get distracted. We don't know, do we need to pray for five minutes, for 30 minutes? But more than anything, I think that a lot of us have just been burned by the act of prayer. 
You know, keep praying for the same thing over and over and over and over, and nothing seems to happen. There seems to be no response. That relative of yours is still in the hospital. That spiritual funk that you're in has not yet dissipated. You're still single. Still can't get pregnant. You keep praying for things over and over and over, and it doesn't seem that God is even hearing. It doesn't seem that God is involved, or at least God is interested. So you're tempted to scrap the whole thing altogether. Prayer is uh, very hard. The thing that I love about Psalm 6 that we're going to look at here in a second is that it is unbelievably honest about the challenge of prayer. It's written by David, King David, the David of David and Goliath. And he is at a point in his life where it is exhausting. He is overwhelmed and he is praying this prayer over and over and over. And frankly, he's sick of it. He's sick of praying. And this prayer is out of this context of I'm overwhelmed with life and I want to stop. Lord, are you hearing me? Is any of this even getting through? That's what I love about this scripture is that it is unbelievably honest. It doesn't, it doesn't assume that prayer comes easy for spiritual people. But at the same time, as I've been looking at this for the past week or so, uh, it's been really helpful for me because I think it provides the resources that we need to face the challenge of prayer. Because in it, there is the gospel. I mean, Pastor Howard is right. There is gospel to prayer. So let's look at it. It's uh, it, the, the first line, the title of it is not actually printed in your bulletin. But I think it's interesting because it says, if you look at it in, in the actual Bible, it says that it's written to the choir director. It's written to the chief musician. It's written to Terence, essentially. And I think that that's important because it this assumes that this is a public thing. Prayer. Uh, David didn't just write this sitting alone in a coffee shop. He wrote this for this to be a public thing. That Psalm 6 is intended to pattern and to shape the way that we pray. And there's three specific elements of this prayer that are, are, are used to aid as a vehicle for our own prayers, for us to pour into our own situations these particular elements. And here are the three elements of what this prayer is. Prayer is first looking upward, then looking inward, and then looking forward. So let's begin by looking upward. Verse 1, he says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. The first word out of David's mouth is Lord. You notice that it's in all caps because this is God's covenantal name. This is a personal name, the name of the God of Scripture. He's not just praying to any generic God up there, God, if you can hear me. He's specifically addressing the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of Scripture, the God that Pastor Howard spoke about two weeks ago of, of being in control over every detail of the universe. The God that last week Pastor Howard spoke about as having purchased a hope for us. This is the God that he is addressing. And he says his name five different times in the first five verses, over and over, on and on. Lord, Lord, Lord. He is addressing specifically this God. But what is he bringing to this God? What is he addressing this God with. Essentially, he's bringing God his story, his situation. And David's uh, story here is fairly multi-layered. Commentators go back and forth over what they think is really going on because there's essentially kind of three different threads to his story. He is dealing with guilt over his own sin. 
as well as uh, uh, he talks about being, uh, you know, he needs to be healed. So there's sort of a physical sickness thing going on as well. And then he keeps talking about foes and enemies like he's being unjustly treated by other people. And so people think maybe it's this and, and not this. But the fact that he mentions all three, I'm prone to think that all three are going on. So look at the first one. Sin, guilt over his own sinfulness. He says in verse 1, Do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am faint. He knows that he deserves God's anger and God's wrath. This makes us feel a little uncomfortable. The fact that here he is deeply in touch with something he has done. He's, he's screwed up again. He knows that he is uh, broken. He has broken God's law. And he knows that he deserves God's displeasure, God's anger, and God's wrath. And so he says, don't treat me according to how I deserve to be treated. He says, be merciful to me. He's appealing to God's mercy. Don't treat me as I deserve. I can't, I can't handle that. I need you to be merciful to me. So he's throwing himself at the mercy of the king. But then there's also this sickness thing going on. Look at it in verse 2 and 3. He says, Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am faint. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are in agony. In addition to this you know, heavy conscience, he's physically suffering. He's physically dealing with some sort of sickness. We don't know what it is, but it's this chronic health issue. Something is not right with him physically. He says that his bones are in agony. The very infrastructure of his being is disrupted. Something is, you know, physically wrong with this guy. And then he says that he is suffering at the hands of others. In verse 7, he talks about his foes. And in verse 8 and 10, he's talking about his enemies. He is being unjustly treated by other people, which in biblical times meant people chase you to kill you. I mean, he's running for his life. People are pursuing him, trying to pin him to walls with spears. He is at a bad place in life. But this is his story. His uh, overcome with his own guilt, overcome with this physical sickness, overcome with the injustice that he is experiencing at the hands of others. He is a victim, a victimizer, and he's sick. A number of you know this story. I've told a couple of you. But earlier this summer, my car got broken into. Uh, I woke up one morning, there's glass out on the ground, and my window was busted, and my iPod was missing. They, they took my iPod, which is a very big deal for me because I'm anti-radio, and so I can't drive around and not listen to anything. So it's, it's, been, a rough, it's been a rough go. It sounds terribly awful. My iPod was stolen, you know. But anyway, my iPod was stolen. And so, you know, I'm mad. I call the police, report my car to the police so they have my, you know, license plate number. We'll get back to you if we hear anything. They have not gotten back to me, by the way. But that was this summer. So I go out to my car later that afternoon because there is a friend of my neighbor visiting. They're kind of a little too close to my car with the window open and all my stuff kind of exposed. So I'm a little uncomfortable. So I go to move my car. And this neighbor, the friend of this neighbor, asks me, hey, do you remember me? And uh, so I, no, maybe. And he says, oh, I live down the street on your same street. I was like, okay, yeah, maybe we've met before. And so he asked if he can, if I can take him to the family dollar because his girlfriend is working at the family dollar and she owes him some money and it'll take 10 minutes. We'll just go. We'll come right back. I'll pay for the gas. So I agree. Okay. This man gets in my car and we're driving to the family dollar. And about three minutes into this ride, as I'm asking him questions, I realize this is not the guy that I thought it was. This is a total stranger in my car. We're going to the family dollar. 
He says, I'm just going to go in, dip in, dip out. I'll be two seconds. You can just wait here in the car. Cool. So I'm sitting there in the parking lot, already mad because my window is busted. It's the summer and my air conditioning is not working. So he goes in. A few minutes later, he comes out. And as he's walking to my car, he's intercepted by this woman who comes out of the store. And I'm thinking, surely this is his girlfriend that he'd go to me. They're just having this kind of final conversation. And she begins pulling merchandise out from under his shirt, bags of socks and bags of underwear that he has obviously stuffed up under his clothing. And he gets into my car. For some reason, I'm still not fully piecing together what's going on here. <laughs> Gives you a little insight into my, you know, reflexes. But... Um, he gets into my car, and the woman, turns out, she is the manager of the store, and she's writing down my license plate number. She says, because he got into your car, I'm calling the police on you. So, in the same day, my car was reported to the police twice. Once as the victim of theft, and once as the accomplice to theft. In the eyes of the law, I was both a victim and a victimizer. It's almost the exact same situation with Psalm 6. If I had only had like a stomach bug or something throwing up, it would have been like perfectly parallel. But this is David's story. I'm a victim, a victimizer. I've been taken advantage of. I've contributed to the mess, and I've got this stomach bug thing going on. This is his context. His, his story is messed up from every single angle, and he's praying his guts out over it. And the context is, is that nothing is happening. God does not seem to be listening. God doesn't seem to be responding. Hello, is any of this even getting through? He says in verse 3, my soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord? How long? The words there literally mean until when? Until when are you going to start hearing hearing this? When is any of this going to get through? God, you don't seem to be hearing me. You know, we... uh, We've all had this situation where we're on our cell phone and we're telling this pretty interesting story. At least we think that it's interesting. We get four or five minutes into telling our story and we get to the end of it, which calls for some sort of response from the person that we're talking to. You know, you've got to the end of it and you're like, can you believe that? And there's silence. You you there? Silence. So you look down at the phone and of course it's like the normal screen. You haven't been talking. Who knows how long you've been talking to yourself? And so you just thought that this person was just very patiently listening to your story, but no, they, they've in fact have not been there. So you call them back, and now you're so afraid of this happening again, you're double-checking every five seconds, so I'm going to the store, are you still there? Okay, yes. So you know, then this happened, you're still there? Yes. Okay, so you're double-checking on and on, are you still listening to me? And I think that, I mean, this is not a, seriously what's happening, but I think it's interesting that that is one reason why David may be saying God's name over and over and over. Lord, are you still there? My guilt is I'm crushing under the weight of my own guilt. God, are you still there? These medical bills are still piling up. God, you still there? People are out there to mess up and slander my reputation. God, are you still there? You know, hello, is any of this getting through? This is the cry of David's heart. This is the context of why he's praying and what is going on. But the thing that is crazy is that David is still praying. In light of all the messiness around him, in light of all the messiness in him, in light of the injustice people attacking him in in the seemingly absence of God, he is still praying. He's still looking upward, still pouring out his heart, still pouring out his story to this God. Why? What would drive somebody to keep 
pouring out his heart to God in light of these kind of circumstances? What is driving him to do this? I think that it's because by looking upward to the God of Scripture, to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he knows that he is praying to a God of mercy, a God of grace. Because knowing this totally transforms how he prays and why he keeps on praying. Look what he says in verse 4. He says, Turn, O Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Save me not because of stuff that I have done, but because of your unfailing love. There's no claims of entitlement here. We all pray like this sometimes. Deep in our hearts, there's that sense of entitlement. God, you owe me. You owe me because of what I've done. You owe me because I put money in the basket when the budget is already tight. You owe me because I chose to live in this neighborhood and take a risk as opposed to live in this neighborhood. You owe me because I've been going to church lately. But there's no claim of entitlement here. He says, save me because of your unfailing love, your grace and your mercy. I know that I don't deserve your favor. I know that I don't deserve your involvement. I don't deserve you to hear me. In fact, I deserve your anger and your wrath. But because by looking upward, he knows that God is a God of mercy. He is driven to pour out his heart and to pour out his story. So this is the first element of his prayer, looking upward. Now he begins to start looking inward. Look at verse 6. He says, I am worn out from groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. This is the point when David starts meta-praying. You know, he's, he's praying about the very prayer that he's praying. And he's saying, I'm, I'm sick of this. I'm, I'm worn out. I'm tired, I've been groaning, I've been crying my eyes out. He says, all night long I flood my bed with weeping. I cry so much that I'm literally saturating my mattress with my tears. And the actual Hebrew there, that word for flood means swim. I'm I'm literally swimming in a pool of tears. I mean, this is, he's obviously upset. (laughs) You know when you cry so much and you kind of get that post-cry headache You know, I don't know if it's dehydration or whatever. What kind of a headache would this look like? I don't know. But obviously, I mean, he says that his eyes grow weak with sorrow. The commentators think that the reason why his eyesight is kind of messing up is because, you know, you get tears in your eyes, they're stinging, your face kind of swells up, you kind of get that blotchy thing going on, and he can't, I mean, his eyes are failing because he's been crying all night long. You know, we sing that song, sometimes I feel like dying, sometimes I feel like crying. He is at that place where he is literally actually crying all night long, weeping over this situation. It is unbelievably painful. He's the victim of injustice. His health is failing. And he's being buried underneath the weight of his own conscience, of his own guilt, of knowing that he has done wrong. The thing that is so impressive about how he does this here is how honest he is about it. How honest he is about his pain and his suffering. He doesn't tape it up with spiritual cliches and and one-liners. He is unbelievably raw about how agonizing this situation is for him. And I think that this raises a question for us. How do we respond honestly to our pain in light of the God of mercy that we're praying to? You know, when it all hits the fan when uh, it feels like the walls are caving in, when, it, when, when jobs are on the line, when jobs have been lost, when retirement plans have been, have been flushed down the drain, how do we respond 
in light of the hardness of our situation and be honest about it, and yet also acknowledge the God that we're praying to. If you're anything like me, you stuff it. Stuff the pain down, ignore it, bottle it up, get it out of the way, and hoping that it just kind of settles itself. Now, how do we do this? We do this by distracting ourselves, right? We run to entertainment. We run to movies or the sports channel or to golf or to uh, go out and go shopping or something, right? Or we get lost on the Internet, just mindlessly clicking away for hours just to turn the volume off on life for a little bit. Or we work. We just simply busy ourselves. We stay at the office later than we should. We keep cleaning the apartment, keep cleaning the house more than we should. Go to the gym more than we should. We use all of these good things to distract ourselves, to just bottle up and store and store away the pain so that we don't have to deal with it, we don't have to look at it anymore. My wife Catherine and I have a, a, an 80-pound bull mastiff that sheds. And um, as we've been divvying up the chores, I decided that I'll take the Swiffering chore. We have hardwood floors in our house, and this dog sheds like you would not believe. I mean, literally, I'm surprised each week the amount of hair that is coming off of this animal that, you know, I have to pick up. And the worst, of course, is in our bedroom underneath the bed. Because not just hair, hair gathering, it's dust gathering. There must be like a magnetic field attracting literally handfuls of hair and dust. It's really disgusting. So I've learned if I can just Swiffer around the bed and not look under it, I don't have to deal with it. Because when when you deal with it, you have to get on your knees and kind of stretch the little Swiffer thing out and bring all that disgusting stuff towards you, and it's just a big mess. So, you know, I, I let it slide a couple of weeks, keep it under the bed nice and safe and secure and stored away. We can't see it, even though it may be kind of bursting out sort of the edges of the bed. But the thing that's interesting is, you know, you, you wait a couple of days and then you start sneezing and the allergies start coming, your eyes start watering, and you don't know why. You can't see the reason why all this stuff is happening, but it is this massive amount of hair and dust that is gathering right underneath our bed. It's the same thing with our pain. When we stuff it and store it up, it'll somehow inevitably, in ways we can never know, start seeping up and affecting us. Little outbursts of anger, outbursts of irritation on the road, pain seeping back up. That's one way to stuff it, to store it, to distract ourselves from it. Another way that we can um, handle our pain, an approach that we're particularly good at in Charlotte, is to southernize it. You know this. You know this uh, approach. Somebody asks you how you're doing, and instead of being honest, you just smile and, and say it's going great, everything is going well. And I understand that there is an element of being polite and being courteous because every person you pass in the hallway asks you how you're doing. You're not going to give a 15-minute dissertation on your struggles in life. But the thing is is that we, we do this with our friends. We do this with our family. We do this with our pastors. We smile and we, and we hide behind the smile and pretend like everything is going great when it's really not. I think the reason why the movie, the, the latest Batman movie, The Dark Knight was so successful was obviously because of the the Joker character. And what was so creepy about the Joker character is he has that smile permanently carved onto his face that, you know, with razor blades. 
this scar presenting to the world, I'm smiling, everything is great, but on the inside we know something is severely twisted, something is severely messed up and wrong. And I think that is an interesting picture of our southernizing our pain. Presenting to the world that we're smiling, everything is okay, but on the inside, it's pretty messy. A close cousin to southernizing it is to dishonestly spiritualizing it. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. You know, we can avoid looking at the pain if we just take a spiritual detour. If we can just present the right theological truth, pray pray the prayer of Jabez instead of honestly praying our, our real prayer, saying the right spiritual lingo and hiding behind that. Then we don't have to look at the pain, then we don't have to deal with it. I had a friend of mine who last year, his wife left him of over 10 years and took the kids with her. It's unbelievably tragic, unbelievably hard situation. And when I spoke with him about it, I don't know if this is what he was doing, but this is the impression that I was getting, that he was stoically persistent. He said to me, God is good and God is in control. And while both of those two things are absolutely true, that yes, God is good and God is in control, even over the tragic situations, there was something about the way that he was saying it that just felt dishonest. just felt like he was stoically saying, God is good, and therefore I don't have to honestly assess and itemize my pain. I don't have to look at it anymore. If I can just hide behind the right spiritual truth, then I don't have to deal with it. But you know, all these approaches, you know, uh, distracting ourselves, southernizing it, overly and, and dishonestly spiritualizing it, are all just different forms of the same thing. It's all just denying the pain, ignoring that it's even there, wanting to operate in life as if this has not happened. And so you deny it. But there's a total flip side of this, right? And that is to drown in it, to be utterly consumed by it, to let it dominate and control everything about you. All of your conversations get seeped with your issues. Every conversation turns into this one-sided counseling situation with your friends. It starts to permeate every relationship that you've ever had. You're drowning in the pain. And it becomes a place where you enjoy it. You don't just embrace it rightly. You get, you get engrossed in it. And you begin to fall in love with it in a sense that it is the place that feels like, like it is home. Pain and shame is the most normal place. And so you run to that and allow yourself to be engrossed by it. And another form of drowning in it is being cynical. Just being hardened and and, and letting nothing penetrate you anymore. Not involving yourself in community, always looking through everything. Because this is just another form of drowning in your pain. Because instead of just embracing it and, and really feeling it, you just throw your middle finger up at it and live your life in that kind of posture. Now this is, it's, it's letting your pain dominate and control your very posture on life. It's still winning. The thing that's interesting is that we are prone to either one of these two extremes. We either want to pretend that it is not there at all, or we want to pretend that it is all that it is there. We want to uh, uh, ignore it completely, or we want to embrace it completely. And the thing that's interesting is that David does not do either of these approaches in this psalm. He doesn't... um, distract himself from it. He faces it head on. He doesn't minimize it. He says that it is raw and it is agonizing and it is scary. But at the same time, he doesn't 
He doesn't drown in it. He doesn't let the pain have the final say. Because there's more to this psalm as well. There's more to this prayer. There's another character involved in his story that he acknowledges. And we see in this last part that David is now looking forward. Looking in verse 8. He says, Away from me, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and dismayed. They will turn back in sudden disgrace. I think this is really interesting because he sets the terms of this resolution in an incomplete tense. I mean, if you look at the, the, the verbs that he's using in verse 10, this is all future tense. All my enemies will be ashamed and dismayed. They will turn back in sudden disgrace. This, this means that the injustice that he's feeling around him is not resolved yet. But it will be one day. I mean, he's essentially re-entering back into the same story that he began praying from, right? For, for right now, he is in the same exact situation. There is no immediate resolution. But he's looking forward to a day when it will be resolved. But for now, he's kind of living in the in-between. The, the, uh, the dot, 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 as Julia Chittister has put it before. But something has happened, right? I mean, it's not like he's entering back into the same exact situation. Something has changed with him. We see kind of this uh, renewed confidence. Something has totally uh, changed. He's, he, he's, he's acknowledging the pain, but there's also this renewed confidence that he has as he's re-entering his own story. And, and, and where is this coming from? What is, what is producing this rejuvenated confidence that he has? It's because he has been in touch with the goodness of God. The very gospel itself. The thing that we have been talking about. Because the gospel of prayer is not the act of praying in itself, but it is the God behind prayer. The God that we are praying to. The God that David began praying to at the beginning of his psalm. The God of scripture. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God of Christ Central. And why does he be, why has he changed from looking to this God? It's because this God hears us. He says this three different times and in three different ways. God hears me. Looking in verse 8. Away from me, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. God hears us. God accepts our prayers. This changes everything. Because when we, when we do confession each week, and that we, like we did this morning, the whole purpose of doing confession presupposes that there is a God on the other side who is hearing us, who is responding to us. Repentance presupposes faith. So when we are confessing our sin, we're not just speaking to a wall, we're not just doing it together like it's uh, some form of, of, of group therapy or something, but it is, it is the God behind our confession that we're praying to because we trust that he hears us, that he actually responds to us. God hears us when we speak to him. When we're, when we're alone, when we're in a, in a darkened room feeling like nobody understands us, nobody gets us, nobody is there for us, it's not true because God is there, hearing, listening, waiting, involved with what we are saying. And this should totally transform our motivation to want to pour out everything in our hearts to him, knowing that he can hear us, knowing that he responds, that he is not distant and removed, but that he is close, listening, 
involved with us. But because this is the God of Scripture, it's not that just he hears us, but that he actually cares as well. You know, it's one thing to have somebody hear what you're saying, but unless they are personally involved, unless they actually care, it's kind of like, you know, talking to your dog or something, who hears the words that you're saying but doesn't actually care or can do anything about it. This God cares because this God loves those who are brokenhearted and suffering. Look at what he says. He says in verse 8 again, The Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord cares about those who are weeping. The Lord cares about those who are crying because God himself experienced suffering. God himself felt pain, felt the tears, cried himself. God cares enough about the messiness of our own stories to write himself into our stories and to do something about it. The day that David is looking forward to ultimately is when Jesus comes. When the brokenness is finally resolved, beginning to be resolved, when, when the sin is being to, beginning to be taken care of, when the sickness is beginning to be dealt with. So, so remember those three themes, those three sort of elements that is going on in his life? Guilt over sin, sickness, and injustice. He's looking forward to when those three things will be resolved when Jesus comes. The guilt that David was feeling and that we all feel over our sin, Jesus came to die for. All of the anger and the wrath of God that he was talking about in the beginning of this psalm, Jesus came and took on the cross so that we who deserve God's wrath and God's anger get mercy and get blessing instead. God cares enough to come and do something about our guilt and about our sin. But also sickness, the sickness that David was experiencing and that we experience at times, Jesus came to take and to undo as well. It says in uh, Isaiah 53, it's talking about Jesus. It says, surely he took up our sicknesses and he carried our pains. On the cross, Jesus was bearing all of the results of a broken world that is falling apart, that is decaying, that is caving in so that he could take and undo it by his resurrection and, and make a down payment for a world to come when there will be no more sickness and no more tears. This is what Giorgio spoke about last week, looking forward to a day when everything will be made right. Jesus came to fix and to undo as well. And the injustice that David was experiencing and that we experience at times, Jesus came and felt as well. Here's a man... Jesus, who never did anything wrong and yet was beaten by the authorities. The people who were put in place to protect him assaulted him and killed him. He was the victim of police brutality. His friends unjustly sold him out. And of course, he was unjustly punished for crimes that he didn't commit. On the cross, he was bearing the penalty of someone else's infractions of the law, yours and mine, so that we who are perpetrators of injustice would not receive the justice that we deserve, but would receive mercy, because Jesus has satisfied justice. God cares enough about injustice to come and do something about it. He came in the person of Jesus to demonstrate how much he cares. Paul says in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates 
God displays his care for us in that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. He gives mercy to those who are broken, to those who are sinful in that context. So God, God hears us, God cares about us, and God responds in mercy. And this is what totally transforms David's heart as he's praying this agonizing prayer. Because in verse 2, he was praying for mercy. He says, be merciful to me, O Lord. And then in verse 9, he says, the Lord has heard my cry for mercy. And this is what changes everything for David. Because the gospel behind prayer is the God who hears us in our messes, precisely in our messes. This means that we don't have to that God does not wait for us to clean up our act and then come to him. This doesn't mean that our prayers have to be perfectly polished, perfectly worded, perfectly phrased in the right way. They can be awkward and imperfect because we're praying to a perfect God who hears us and is merciful to us in the context of our very messes and brokenness. Because the gospel is God comes to meet us in the person of Jesus in our messes, in our painful situations, in our broken context. He doesn't wait for us to get it all together and then come to him, but he comes to us where we are in our mess. And so David is ultimately looking forward to the cross, to the day when God would come and ultimately begin to start changing what is so wrong with our world and with our own personal stories. And for us who are on this side of the cross, we're kind of looking backward at the cross, But at the same time, that same trajectory that David has as he's praying forward, we pray forward as well. Because like Giorgio said, we are looking forward to a day when ultimately all of this will get fixed. The day of the new heavens and the new earth. The day when sin will ultimately be uh, taken care of. When sickness will ultimately be done away with. When injustice will ultimately be uh, gone from this world. Because right now we're still in it. We're still sinful. We're still experiencing physical sickness. We're still experiencing injustice around us. But we too, with David, look forward to a day when all of this will be taken care of because of what Jesus has done when he came. So how do we overcome the challenges of our Prayers And obviously there's lots of different types of prayers, lots of different angles that uh, could be addressed. This is just one particular way of how you pray in light of pain. I think the gospel will start to get traction in our souls and start to rejuvenate and revitalize the way that we pray when we use these elements and start looking upward to the God of the Bible, to the God that we know gives mercy and the God that hears us. When we look inward and, and can honestly assess our own pain and be real about the agony of it and not deny it or to not drown in it, but to own it for what it really is. And then look backward to the cross and look forward to the day that that God will usher in and bring when all of this will be taken care of ultimately. And once we reorient our heart and reorient our soul to this God who actually cares enough about our pain and hears us in our pain and actually uses our prayers... This will totally rejuvenate and revitalize and change the way that we pray, make us actually want to pray again, make us want to face the challenge of facing a God that sometimes doesn't seem like he's hearing us because we trust, like David, that he does, that he hears us, and he's merciful to respond. Let's pray.
Father, we trust that you do hear us. You even hear us now. And some of us are being crushed under the weight of our own sin even as we speak. Some of us have medical bills that are piling up with finances that are running dry. Some of us have felt betrayed by friends, have been sold out by bosses and by co-workers. We feel the pain around us. We pray that you would give us new eyes to see and to fix our heart on you, on a God who is so good that uh, you hear our prayers and you care and you respond in mercy. We pray that you would transform our hearts, transform the way that we pray, and of course reorient our vision in the Lord Jesus who came as a demonstration of your love for us, that you will fix all of this mess one day. We pray this in the name of our King, this Lord Jesus. Amen.